Blog Talk Radio. in this month's live broadcast of The Way of Healing. My name is Susan Brozak, and I'm a licensed clinical Christian psychotherapist and founder of Healing Word Psychotherapy Services, my private practice. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Tonight, we're going to be looking at conflict within marriage, an issue that is common reality for many couples, but it does not need to be a constant or prevailing pattern in marriages. When perspective is gained and tools for resolution are given and put into practice. So in this two-part broadcast, we will discover biblical principles concerning husband and wife relationships, explore ways to strengthen a marriage, and turn conflicts into opportunities for growth. Not just growth with our spouse, but also with God himself. We'll take a close look at the covenant of marriage and what God intended it to be, and also how our relationship with our spouse is a reflection of the relationship that Christ, our bridegroom, has with us as his bride. So in my private practice, around a fourth of all the patients that I work with are married couples. And conflict in marriage is really quite a common reality for many couples. Satan, who is the enemy of our soul, spends extra effort, I believe, attacking Christian marriages and families because it's one of the things that he most despises, a Christ-centered household and Christ-glorified through marriage as it reflects Jesus as our bridegroom and us as his bride. So we have to be well-balanced and alert according to scripture because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The enemy will use all the tactics he can come up with to try to bring strife and divisiveness into a Christian marriage. And if we're wise to his schemes and we expose his lying ways, he no longer holds any power or threat over us. And that's very important that we be aware, not that we are constantly being, uh, setting our mind on um, things of darkness, but as scripture says, to be sober-minded and alert. So being alert to the fact that our real enemy is not our spouse, but our real enemy is Satan, uh, really puts a different perspective on things when it's, uh, as it pertains to conflict in marriage. And in my marital counseling sessions with my patients, I'm frequently asked what it means to have a, quote, good marriage. Many people think a good marriage is one in which there's a never a difference opinion, of opinion, never a disagreement, or even any type of conflict. This, however, is not a realistic definition of a good marriage. Instead, I often explain to married couples that a good marriage will indeed have disagreement or conflict from time to time, but that doesn't make it a bad marriage. A good marriage does not mean a marriage that is completely void of conflict. Rather, 
A good marriage is one in which disagreement and conflict are handled in a respectful, other-centered manner with Christ at the helm. When we consider our spouse in a respectful manner and treat him or her with love and preference, we're less likely to be self-centered, which truly is a root cause in many marital problems. So then let's look at what really is self-centeredness. Seems obvious by the term, but we're just going to unpack it a little bit further. Self-centeredness is the attitude towards one's spouse that says, you are here to help me advance my own interests as I define them. And author Larry Crabb says, and I'm quoting, nothing is more natural, especially when we suffer from wounds caused by unjust treatment from another person, than to regard our immediate well-being as the final purpose that justice should serve. So in other words, in a fair and just universe, a person would be well-treated, and how that person feels would matter deeply to everyone. Unfortunately, this is not reality. Self-centeredness can also be a type of self-deception, as speaker and author Charles Swindoll says. The fact that we're self-centered includes the fact that we can be self-deceived to an extent, according to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Not only do we want our concerns to override all others, we want to be able to congratulate ourselves on being decent, well-intentioned people. So oftentimes we don't admit that our deepest commitment is to ourselves, or we don't admit that we marry in order to further that commitment. The life of our spouse in some cases is expected to revolve around our self-concern. And we may not admit that our caring for another person often springs from mixed motives. We do care, but sometimes we also, quote, mail our care packages with a self-addressed stamped envelope, so to speak, for return benefits for us as well. And our marriages will develop problems to the degree that we marry with the hidden agenda of giving in order to receive. And not all people do this, of course. But it does happen at times. And so obviously we're focusing here on problematic marriages. Um, certainly many people uh, marry for all of the, the right reasons or most of the right reasons, but some people don't. And so we're going to look at what to do in situations like that. And the Bible has a lot to say about our unmet needs. Um, the Bible portrays us as parched, thirsty souls. Isaiah 55, 1 to 2 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. So in this passage, the Lord invites the thirsty to his fountain. The only qualification is that of acknowledged thirst. But this cry and this dependency is not often liked by many people because our fleshly nature doesn't want to have to admit that we might be in need of something. Such neediness requires that we admit that we are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, according to Revelation 3.17. And the flesh and its pride really resist this kind of honesty with ourselves. But the more honest we can be, the healthier we can be. And I'll often say this in, in sessions with patients that the more honest and transparent and authentic um, that they can be in their therapy process, 
the more healing they'll receive. And if you don't know where to start with this, the best way to go about it is to really ask the Holy Spirit to reveal because the Spirit searches all things. He knows our hearts. Um, to show us what's in our hearts. Um, search my heart of God. Know, know the ways that are within me. And those are things that are said to us in Psalms. So if David is stating things along those lines, not quoting it verbatim, but just this fact that he's asking God to search his heart. So we need to do the same thing. The Lord searches it and he will reveal to us what's in our own hearts if we don't know. And some people don't know. There's been denial built up or different reasons, but it's really important to have some level of self-introspection when you're in a committed marriage so that you can also understand the standpoint that you're coming from. So I want to talk now about an interesting rendition of James 4, 1 through 2. But first, I'm going to read the actual scripture, and then I'll read the rendition. So James 4, 1 through 2, in the New King James Version, it says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So the rendition, and this is by an unknown author, um, states, this is his version, his or her version of that passage, what causes you, husbands and wives, to fight so? Don't these conflicts erupt because of your thirsts that have been perverted into demands and lusts? Don't these scream for attention and insist on release? You want what these demands dictate, but you don't get it from one another. Therefore, you covet still more. Despite all this urgent effort, you're still impotent. What you want isn't available, yet you intensify your battle to extract it from each other. You'll never get there. You must turn to God in humble dependency. Only in asking him is there hope and peace. And I just thought that was a really powerful way to view this passage, and it really emphasizes that oftentimes in a marriage where we're really looking to that other person to meet every single one of our needs, and no human being can do that. And I think when people realize, hey, I'm looking to the wrong source to get all my needs met, it becomes that much easier then to really switch perspective and realize that God is the source for meeting all of our needs perfectly. Yes, in, in marriage, our spouse will, will meet some of our needs, and some of that is reasonable and realistic. But if we're expecting it 100% of the time for 100% of our needs, we're, we're going to wind up immediately in disappointment and discouragement and having unmet needs and um, just um, a situation of discouragement, like I said, and not knowing where to go because we think that that person is supposed to be the source of everything for us. Flesh and blood can't be. God can be. And so, again, in a marriage, we shouldn't expect ourselves to stop being emotionally or spiritually thirsty, but rather to shift the urgency of that thirst onto God. Rather than a, a spouse saying, quote, I'm empty and you are responsible to fill me, each one should say, I'm empty and my emptiness is so deep and troubling that only God in his mercy can touch it. So this shift of perspective also shifts our expectations off of our spouse and onto God. 
Also, in James 4, 1 through 2, which we just read, we can see some excellent principles for marriage. And this gives us some solid basis and foundation for a marriage. So first of all, from this passage, we can see that unhealthy conflict erupts from demands that one spouse can meet one's needs in a way that only God can, like I mentioned. And that's a common mistake that a lot of us make. It's usually made in ignorance, just not knowing any better, having a a romanticized idea of marriage or influenced by movies or other different uh, cultural beliefs that that person, you know, is a soulmate. And and that phrase alone carries with it the fact that your soul is going to be fulfilled in that person and your needs will all be met. Um, And that is, it sets forth an unrealistic path right from the get-go, in my opinion. Um, So I want to break down now some principles for marriage that uh, we just read from that passage in James. So this passage gives us essentially four solid principles for a healthier marriage. And the first one, as I alluded to before um, we went into this deeper, is the fact that unhealthy conflict erupts from demands that one's spouse meets one's needs in only a way that God can. So while healthy conflict is constructive at times, all conflict must be guided by the question, am I quarreling because I have a selfish, demanding spirit? And that's the question that you can ask yourself as you ask the Lord to search your heart, because conflict will inevitably arise in your marriage. So you want to look initially at, is this coming from a demand that's very self-centered in myself? Or is it coming from a reasonable expectation and a reasonable request? And this is where the Holy Spirit can really help you as you submit these things to him to show you where your particular unmet needs are being driven from and what your expectations are of your spouse, the unhealthy expectations. Another principle from this passage is personal neediness moves the self to the top of the list and moves the spouse lower down the list. So when an inner thirst wants attention, it's really calling out for God, but the flesh has such a strong need that it will transform into those unrealistic expectations of another person, as I mentioned, because it's easier to look to a person, flesh and bone, and expect them to meet our needs than to go to God, not understanding how how he's going to meet certain needs in our marriage. Um, We don't often our first response doesn't tend to be to go immediately to God with an issue within the marriage. It's usually to go to the spouse. So this whole series, this two-part series we're going to be doing tonight and next month is meant to give you a different perspective on how you approach um, conflictual issues that arise within a marriage um, and needs that are unmet. And so that obviously is what I'm referring to when I say going to God first and looking to him for things that only he can fill. So unrealistic expectations are one of the core roots of dissatisfaction that I've seen over the years at my practice. And a key to break the cycle of disappointment from this is to communicate with your spouse what your expectations actually are. It's almost as if we expect our spouse to be a mind reader in some cases and to know what we're expecting and to know exactly um, what we need and want at all times. And that that in and of itself is a real source of a lot of pain in marriages um, because 
oftentimes there's no thought given to the fact that, hey, I don't think I ever communicated to my spouse that this is what I expected. Well, if it wasn't communicated, then you certainly can't expect the person um, to, to understand what it is that you're, you're wanting within a, whatever context of the marriage we're discussing. So communication is key when it comes to expectation. A third principle that we gain from this passage in James is that the marriage must evolve from self-centered grasping to God-centered humility and other-centered ministry. So the marriage cannot command the respect of our spouse unless it changes from a place to get your own needs met to a safe sanctuary. And what I mean by that, and for example, you might say, I want what I want when I want it. (laughs) And that could become, I really am needy and poor, and how can I help this other person find their strength in God? There's a switch that's made. It goes from putting your own self first to thinking of your spouse first. And that's really shifting the focus off of yourself and onto that other person. And in the process, God, being as creative as he is, finds ways for your own needs to be met once you prefer that other person. In other words, when you put that other person above your own needs. So there's that sacrificial piece to a marriage that also is not a popular topic for discussion, but a marriage is, in fact, a sacrificial covenant. Okay, and fourth, um, in terms of steps that we're, we're gleaning from this passage in James, each spouse must be sensitive to the needs of a marriage, surrendering the right to be constantly gratified. So a marriage that commands loyalty and is worth defending requires that each partner relinquish self-centeredness and sacrifice a portion of his or her autonomy when a situation calls for it. So kind of circling back to what I just said, at times there will need to be sacrifices made that aren't always pleasant, but if we're looking at the marriage covenant being a reflection of God's covenant, um, Christ as the bridegroom and us as the bride, if that's a reflection of, of that covenant set forth in Scripture, then there's a lot of sacrificial element that goes into a marriage. And we'll talk about that further as well uh, later on. But I want to talk now about how a biblical perspective can be applied to marital conflicts. So let's look at one example. And this is kind of a stereotypical example, yet it's a useful scenario where a wife might complain that her husband shows no interest in emotional connection. Maybe he watches too much TV, he's on his phone too much, um, or he's busy with other tasks around the house. So this scenario might look like this, and this would be the wife in a in just an exemplary um, situation. My husband seems to use up all his energy at work, and then at home, he pre- he's pretty much checked out. The TV's on constantly. He watches it, or he's on his phone all through the evening. When we go to bed at 10 or 11, he is still bound to his screen media, so on his phone or on his iPad, whatnot. And on weekends, he's into sports. And when I try to get him to talk, he replies that, quote, all women want to do is talk, unquote, and tells me to call one of my friends instead. I feel no closeness with him, and I'm becoming resentful. So that's just like an example of a quote from a wife who might be feeling kind of ignored or set on a shelf or not given the attention that she's needing 
um, throughout the course of the marriage because her husband is kind of emotionally checked out. So um, this may be a common scenario that you can relate to or aspects of it, um, but it's one that I hear of frequently when I'm working with couples in marital counseling. So I thought I would use this one as our example tonight. Um, So if we look at this situation, we have to look beyond the surface to discover, and this might sound surprising, but to discover, first of all, what does the husband feel? And we can ask the question, what deep needs might be underlying this husband's detachment? Perhaps his longing is for respect, but he's given up on that for some reason. And in a marriage, it's mainly true, generalizing, but it's mainly true that the husband's greatest need is for respect and the wife's greatest need is to be loved and cherished. Yes, this is a generalization, and I typically don't like generalization, but this is meritorious nonetheless, and it's also scriptural, and it leads back to passages of scripture that we'll be talking about perhaps in the second uh, half of this two-part series. So another situation that the husband might be feeling here is maybe he's become hopeless and he's bitterly accepted that respect will never be his, or perhaps now he settles for less, the safety of being uninvolved. And people will do this to try to keep themselves safe safe from being hurt. They'll withdraw and they'll put up walls around their heart. So perhaps in this case, this husband wants the safety of never having to face the helplessness he feels when his wife lets him know what her feelings are. Sometimes they may not know how to handle those emotions. So why would he want to avoid this? Where might he have felt hopelessness in his life in the past? Is it only with his wife or is it perhaps with a situation that occurred prior to his marriage? Perhaps it was linked to a tragedy in the marriage, such as the loss of a job or death of a child, Or was hopelessness felt early on in life? Perhaps he was shamed whenever he sought to make decisions or take initiative as a younger child. So I say all that to say, looking at the roots of behaviors can help us gain an understanding of why our spouse acts the way they do versus just coming out and attacking them for why they aren't meeting our needs in the way that we want our needs met. So I give you these examples just to make the statement that there's usually something deeper going on beyond what may look like a surface situation at first. And these types of questions can help you kind of get to the root of that. Okay, so what about the wife then in this situation? What does she need? She desires to be cherished, as I alluded to before, asking for the warmth of her husband's involvement and connection with her. Is that a wrong desire? Certainly not, not in the least. Being cherished, however, should not be her goal, since a goal must be something within her control, and her husband is not within her control. And that, by the way, is another huge issue in marital conflict, the issue of control. More on that later. So while she should pray about her desire to be cherished and present it, truth and love, to her husband, so she's asking her husband about this and saying, this is something that I need that I feel is, is deficient in our marriage. Her higher priority in this case should be to pursue the goal of being a loving partner to her spouse, as stated from Genesis 2.18, which is a verse that you can look up as um, after the broadcast um, 
as we look at the timing here. So unless she makes this distinction between the goal to be a godly partner versus the desire to be cherished, she'll be trapped in the intensity of her disappointment and tempted to turn desire into demand. So where should the wife focus her efforts to help her husband in this situation? She could try to shift her focus onto his character. She could refuse to give up hope that he can be the man God made him to be by believing in him even when he doesn't believe in himself. So she could encourage him is what I'm essentially trying to say versus just looking at it from beating him down. So is is this suggesting that this is all up to the wife to fix? <laughs> Absolutely not. The answer to that is no, not at all. God alone can supply her the strength this wife needs. So that said, what should the husband focus his efforts on to help his wife? He should focus them primarily on her well-being, and he should be um, in a position where he's letting her know that she's allowed to express her needs in the relationship, and then he can endeavor to understand and take on the example of Christ's love and attempt to meet those needs. So that's part of his responsibility, and that can be also done and all needs to be done with God's help. So we're kind of dividing up here where the responsibilities lie as we talk through this scenario. And it is balanced. It's not all on one partner or the other. It's basically 100% on each of them. We hear the, we hear the phrase all the time, it's 50-50 in a marriage. I would actually say it's 100-100. Um, the energy and effort that you put into a marriage will be what you get out of it in terms of results. So if you're only putting in 50%, that's about what you're going to get back. It's kind of the law of sowing and reaping in that sense. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives, as we've read um, in Ephesians 5, 27 and 28, as Christ loved the church. So he can also learn something that I call, as he's working on uh, paying attention to her when she's trying to express something, something I call, listen with your faith. And what I mean by that is... Um, <laughs> So many times when someone's trying to have a conversation with us, they might be on their phone, for example. We're trying to make a point or they might be reading something or their eyes are on the television. So when you listen with your face, you're turning your face to meet that person's uh, eyes. You're making eye contact so that they know that, um, that, that you've got their full attention and that they have your full attention. So listening with your face has to do with being deliberate and intentional in um, helping the other person know that you are, in fact, hearing them. And if you stay on your phone while they're talking to you, it's, it's kind of a dismissive way of saying what you're saying is not important enough for me to put down my phone and actually, you know, look at you so we can get this resolved. So that's another thing that um, can be really helpful when you're going through a situation that requires um, attention. So the wife may, in spite of her uh, position in Christ, feel rejected or feel unwanted if she feels like her husband's ignoring her. So her husband is called with God's help to show her a godly and non-judgmental love. He can learn to know her real feelings and allow himself to be more moved by them, by them than by the urgency of his own needs or preferences in that moment. So a healthy marriage is a reciprocal and sacrificial endeavor. 
reciprocal, meaning both parties need to be equally engaged or close to equally engaged, and sacrificial, obviously, is self-explanatory, um, that you will be making sacrifices in the marriage to see it go forward in the healthiest possible way and in the way that's most aligned with Scripture, quite frankly. So, again, this scenario, even if some of it is a bit of a stereotype, uh, points out the fact that as we consider others as more important than ourselves and put the needs of others first, God will ensure and give us the grace that our own needs will be met in the process. And yes, this is contrary to our human nature, 100% contrary, but that's the whole point. <laughs> so when we're giving out and we're deciding to put that person first and to really look at what's driving their behavior be curious about what's going on in their mind and what is causing them to sort of be disconnected or whatever the situation might be. When we put that first instead of making demands about our own needs and we actually take the time to learn about our spouse and what they might be going through, God will see to it that our needs are met. Yes, we need to articulate our needs to our spouse 100%, but in the moment and in that process, God will still find ways to satisfy our own thirst, like I read from that passage earlier in this broadcast. Let's now take a look, though, um, in the second half of tonight's show about four essentials of marriage. So these are things that a marriage needs and can truly benefit from. That's what I mean by an essential. And these four essential elements for marriage are based on Genesis 2, 24 to 25, which says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So some Bible scholars present an interesting synthesis of this passage. So first of all, a man shall leave his father and mother. This principle could be called severance. And the next phrase, and shall cleave to his wife, this is permanence. They shall become one flesh. That could be considered unity. And then finally, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That could be considered intimacy. So these are four essentials that are the deepest needs of a marriage, according to many Bible scholars and therapists and um, Christian counselors in the field that I'm in. So this is why um, to go from I to you to we is so important. Unless a marriage has this sense of we, it may be in need of some help. So instead of always just looking at your own, once again, your own needs, your own desires, your own this, your own that, you have to look at you and your spouse as a team together. A team together that as, as you grow closer to the Lord, both individually and corporately within the context of marriage, you will grow closer to each other and you will be strengthened as a team. So there's many couples that have never had this sense of joy over creating a bond that is greater than the two of them and rests ultimately in God himself. So the couple really needs to depend on God for the wisdom and strength to build these four essentials into their marriage that I just mentioned. What I'm going to be reading now are some questions that incorporate these four essentials that you can kind of ask yourself um, as you listen. And again, these are I like to, to frame things in the form of a question because I think it's more effective to really get you to think on your own um, about 
what I'm saying and what the principles I'm trying to teach versus just telling you how to think. If you can come to conclusions on your own and as you listen to the voice of the Lord in prayer time and reading the word and so forth, it's much more meaningful and effective um, versus just being told how to think about something. Um, so as I read these questions, just kind of let the Holy Spirit um, direct you and bring things to mind and um, just ponder these things. So for the principle of severance, which again is a man shall leave his father and mother, you might ask, has either spouse in this marriage struggled to leave their parents, either emotionally or physically? Very important to know. Some people have a lot of trouble with this. Sometimes there's even a lot of time spent by one spouse in the household of their family of origin. So one spouse may spend a lot of time with their parents while their husband or wife is at home alone. Um, there's nothing wrong with spending time, obviously, but if it's a huge amount and it's taking away from the marriage to the point where it's affecting um, and causing conflict, then that's a different situation. So for the second principle, which we're calling this prin principle of permanence, which relates back to shall cleave to his wife, some questions to ask are, does the marriage have each spouse's highest commitment or is there a back door open somehow? If there is, why is that? Is the commitment half-hearted? If the commitment is half-hearted, why is the commitment half-hearted? So these are things, again, just to get you to think about it at a deeper level and to try to get to the root of some things um, and some ways to look at these different principles and how they can be applied in your own marriage. And then thirdly, as for unity, which again is they shall become one flesh, you can ask, has either spouse put anything other than God above their partner? For example, children, friends, parents, activities, education, career, or even ministry. And this is a big one that I see a lot in my practice, um, working with ministry leaders or pastors and so forth, where not necessarily on purpose, but um, the ministry has been put above the marriage and the needs of the church are different things, different uh, leadership roles, um, church boards and the like have taken precedence over the marriage itself. And that can lead to a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment, can really turn the spouse off to God in some cases, can cause a spouse to become offended at God, although God, of course, cannot commit an offense, but there's this concept where um, if if church and ministry is prioritized over a marriage, um, there's no doubt then going to be some resentment that can build up um, over time. Now, obviously, there are situations where, yes, in a in a you know um, singular example or maybe several times where a need has to be met and it might supersede the marriage for a few hours. I'm not talking about minutia here. I'm talking about in general, is the marriage um, being superseded by ministry needs? Because if it is, both are at risk. Both the marriage is at risk and the ministry is at, at risk because you can't, um, you can't expect to have an effective ministry if things are out of order according to scripture. Um, so going back to what is the priority um, and if we're looking at the marriage being a reflection of the covenant between our bridegroom and us as his bride 
that has to come above even ministry in the church. And that can be really difficult for some people to um, to realize or to understand or to even accept. So another question along these lines um, is what hunger or need are these other things fulfilling? Like I mentioned different things like activities outside the home, um, anything that's superseding the marriage, what needs are being fulfilled there that could be fulfilled in other ways that wouldn't cause the marriage to be third or fourth or fifth down the line by the time you get to it. So um, then finally, in terms of um, these four essentials, for intimacy, which relates to the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed, we might ask, what creates distance in a marriage? Why would one or both of the spouses accept that distance, that, that distance is there and do nothing about it, for example? What would cause someone to be okay with the marriage drifting apart versus putting effort and energy in to try to bring it back together. So these are all things to ponder and to go to, you know, lay, lay before the Lord and see if anything is brought to your mind as you wait on God with these questions and these um, comments. So these are just some good principles that we can look at when we're trying to discern roots of marital conflict. Uh, for the remainder, as we begin to wrap here, I want to take a look now at learning to identify some self-centered agendas that we may have in a marriage. Probably not going to be very hard to identify, but I'm going to do it nonetheless because it's often, we are often blinded to our own issues. So first of all, unhealthy conflict erupts from demands that one spouse meets one's needs in a way that only God can, as I mentioned before. So you can ask yourself, how have I used my spouse to meet needs that only God can meet? And as a result, how has this generated conflict in our marriage? I think that's a really key question for the entire broadcast tonight is landing on this. How have I used my spouse to meet needs that only God can meet? And as a result, how has this generated conflict in our marriage? That's something to really park on for more than just the 15 seconds I'm able to give tonight with the, the time uh, deadline, but that's something that I would encourage you to think on if your marriage does have uh, persistent conflict. Another point is personal neediness moves self to the top of the list and moves the spouse lower on the list, as I also mentioned before. So you can ask yourself, how is my focus on getting my needs met damaged my ability to love? That's a strong one, because if you're all about getting your needs met perfectly all the time, how is that affecting the way in which you're loving your spouse? What do you think it's doing to, to your spouse? Um, and also, the marriage must ultimately, ideally, evolve from self-centered grasping to God-centered humility. And you can say to yourself, how can our marriage become more of a mutual sanctuary, a safe haven? instead of just a place where we're trying to drain each other to get needs met that are only met by God. This is a key piece to maturing a marital relationship. When you realize that God is the source, yes, our spouse can be the source to meet some needs. Don't misunderstand me. It's a, it's a you know, 
we're walking a line here that I realize could be misinterpreted. There are needs our spouse meets and can meet and should meet. What I'm talking about is an extreme situation where there's a lot of marital conflict and the couple is draining each other to get their needs met from one another instead of turning to God. And so if you can get that piece in order and lined up correctly, you will see transformation in your marriage. You will see it. So you can also ask yourself more questions to ponder. What has been scary or frightening to me about putting the needs of our marriage before my own individual needs? So sometimes it's that vulnerability of what would happen if I actually think about the needs of the marriage before my own? What are gonna, what's going to happen to my own needs? We're wired from a very young age to get our needs met. Think about babies. They have a need and they cry and they scream until that need is met. This is hardwired in human nature and in our flesh is to get our needs met. And in childhood, kids want something, they'll make their voice known, they want their needs met. So this is something that doesn't just start out when people say, I do. This has been hardwired all, all throughout the, the years preceding the, the wedding day. So this is what both people bring into a marriage is, is their needs and how to get them met and not knowing how to instead look beyond that and to the other person and what that other person might need first. That's the sacrificial element. So in closing, some exercises that can help address problem areas in marriage include, first of all, a trust-building exercise. And the key idea here with this is to nourish healthy communication. And to do this, the couple must cultivate trust and vulnerability, like I mentioned before. So some questions you can ask yourself in this area of trust are, how do I feel when I try to convince my spouse of something and they can't accept it? How do I feel when I think that my spouse is judging me? How do I feel when I hear from others that my spouse has affirmed and complimented me? How do I feel when I hear from others that my spouse has complained about me? And how do I feel when my spouse cries or expresses other deep, heartfelt emotions? Questions are all going to a a certain point, but ultimately it's under the umbrella of trust and vulnerability. So if you can really ponder those, and by the way, this broadcast is available for archived on-demand listening. So if you missed some of this and you want to go back and re-listen and and take further notes, um, after it's aired live uh, and when we're finished tonight live, it will be archived at the same uh, link that, and you can go back and listen to it if you need to because I realize I'm throwing a lot of material at you in a short amount of time um, due to time constraints. But these are all questions that can really help you go deeper and it goes towards the healing of marital conflict. So these are some of the questions that kind of will bring the root out of areas in problems in a marriage, and it will also identify misunderstandings and assumptions that may have been made. So another exercise that can help in growing your marriage is a sensitivity-building exercise. And the idea with this one is to nourish healthy communication. In order to do this, A couple must be observant and sensitive. So some thought-provoking questions for this area might include, 
When my spouse is discouraged, what body language does he or she display? Do you know your spouse's body language? Do you understand what it means? When my spouse is happy, what body language do they display? How do I know when my spouse is in a place of need? And how do I feel at those times when he or she is in need of something? Do I tune in and out when my spouse is talking? What might be scary about listening more closely? So these are tough questions, but I think they reveal a lot about how you may interact with your spouse and how your interactions with your spouse cause you to feel. People at times don't want to feel certain things. <laughs> and that's, a, that's the most simplified way I can say it. And so if you're uncomfortable, if there's unhealed wounds from your past, and you're trying to have a healthy relationship with a spouse, you have to go back and address those wounds, which if they've never been healed, it now means they're infected, and those things need to be addressed before you can truly move forward in a healthy way in a marriage. So that is also a piece that goes to individual work and individual healing but it all is brought under this context of how to have a healthier marriage. If you're bringing two people that have levels of brokenness together, naturally there are going to be some issues that arise, and you may need to work on those things individually if they're individual issues or maritally if they're marital issues. So a third exercise is called, um, what I'm calling, a strength-building exercise. And the goal here is to help the couple see the positives in their union. And it's critical that a couple learn how to communicate appreciation to each other, remembering that what gets rewarded gets repeated. And I have to quickly say that this is not meant to manipulate. Um, it's, it's not that you are trying to have a motive of, oh, if I continue to reward my spouse in this area, I know that it'll be repeated and my motive is just to have my way. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Rather, it's a reminder that people need validation and acknowledgement. So if your spouse does do something kind for them and you say nothing and don't validate it, they may feel like you kind of minimized or dismissed what they did. So this is another key that gets usually lost in in marriages is did I make my spouse spouse feel appreciated, to make an effort so that my spouse feels appreciated, acknowledged, and validated when he or she did something that was meaningful to me. And it's not just about if they bought you a gift or something like that. It's even about, like, as you work on your marriage together with God at the center, um, and you can see that they're working on the marriage, just letting them know, hey, I saw what you just did there, and that was meaningful, and that's helpful to us as a couple and in this marriage. So, you know, it's making a point to to let them know that you see and hear them and that you see and hear their efforts. So in my own work with couples, I encourage, and along these lines of appreciation, for couples that for two or three weeks, um, just each day to write down about five qualities that they appreciate in their mate. And after the two to three weeks are up, I encourage them to share this list with each other. And it's a it's surprising and amazing to some people um, that there have been so many positive qualities that their spouse is appreciated in them. So you might be surprised if you do this exercise, just five a day for a couple of weeks, 
to hear your spouse actually verbalizing what they appreciate about you. It's a very healthy exercise and very helpful, and it gives perspective to the harder times. So I recommend that this goes both ways reciprocally, uh, the wife for the husband and the husband for the wife for a couple of weeks, and just see what kind of platform that lays as you go forward in your marriage. Um, you'll note that it will greatly build gratefulness, and it will also change your perspective in some very key ways. So on that positive note, that's all the time that we've got left for tonight on guidance and dealing with marital conflict. And I hope you'll join me next month for part two of this two-part series, where I'll be sharing more tools and strategies to help build a stronger, healthier, and more God-centered marriage relationship. So as we close in prayer, I want to thank you so much for listening this evening. And if you would like to contact me directly at Healing Word, which is my private practice, please feel free to call 414-254-9862 or visit my website at healing-word.com. I'll close this up now in prayer. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to minister your word, Lord, and to um, just be able to share on the importance of marriage and the, the way that you created it and, and the covenant that it is, Lord God. You created and designed it in such a way that it not only uh, brings two people together, Lord God, but it also reflects your love, Jesus, as our bridegroom to us as your bride. And so I just pray that um, all who are listening tonight, Lord God, that you would just um, highlight for them the things that are most important for them to remember from this broadcast, Lord, and minister to the needs that of all who are listening this evening, Lord, from all different parts of the world, Lord God. We just ask, God, that you would bring hope, bring encouragement where there might be discouragement about the marriage they're in, Lord, just bring uh, perspective to what they're going through. Lord, bring your grace, your comfort, and your strength to each person listening that they may carry that forward into their marital relationship and desire to make healthy changes for the marriage. Lord, as you um, fill us with what we need to be the spouse that you intended for us um, in the marriage that you've placed us, Lord God, we thank you that you are ever able and ever waiting to help us, and we need only to call it on your name. I just ask that you would bless um, all listening, Lord God. Thank you for this time tonight, and we just ask all these things in your glorious and holy name. Amen. Thanks again so much for listening, and God's richest blessings be upon you.